It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm James Blitz, stepping in for Sebastian Payne, who was away this week. In this episode, we will be discussing Theresa May's first few days as Prime Minister and her cabinet, plus the beginning of another leadership contest for the Labour Party. To do this, I'm delighted to be joined by Philip Stevens and Robert Shrimsley, my two colleagues at the FT, and John McTernan, a former advisor to Tony Blair, and Emma Burnell, a commentator on the Labour Party. Thank you all for joining. So let's begin with Theresa May, Britain's new Prime Minister. After the abrupt end of the Conservative leadership contest earlier in the week, she took up residence in Number 10 Downing Street on Wednesday evening, delivering a stirring speech which was markedly different to that of her predecessor, David Cameron. She's also put together her first cabinet, axing many of the key figures who were present throughout the Cameron years. Philip, let's turn to Theresa May's cabinet first. As you look down the cabinet list, what do you think? What kind of government has she formed? I think the first thing to say is that it's a very different government. There are a lot of sackings. They tended to be from what was called the Notting Hill set. I think there's only one Etonian standing now in the cabinet, and that's Boris Johnson. I'm sure we'll come back to him. But I think the reshuffle at first sight showed First, her ruthlessness, the fact that she was basically prepared to cull so many of David Cameron's cabinet, George Osborne in particular, the Chancellor. I think it signalled that she wants a different style of government, I think a bit more formal, a bit more grown up and a bit more to the left. But I wouldn't exaggerate that too much. All prime ministers come in saying they're going to be one nation leaders, as it were. I'm not sure that we're going to see this government showering money on public spending, for example, and welfare. So I think there's a big rhetorical shift towards the one nation centre ground. I think we'll have to wait and see if it's substantive. Robert, let's look first of all at the appointments on the Brexit front, the three figures whom she's appointed to manage Britain's departure from the EU, Boris Johnson as Foreign Secretary, Liam Fox as the Trade Secretary and David Davis in charge of the negotiations. First of all, Boris Johnson, is he going to cut it as Foreign Secretary? He's certainly going to keep us entertained. It's very easy to mock and laugh at Boris Johnson, but one also has to remember that he cuts through to voters and he cuts through to people abroad as well. So he will get attention, he will get noticed. He has an ability to win friends in spite of all the flaws that many of us can see in him. We also, I think, have to remember, however, that the Foreign Office job is not what it was 150 years ago before there was an era of easy and mass communications. Important foreign policy decisions are taken by the Prime Minister. The Foreign Office itself has now been split three ways so that you have... As you said, David Davis overseeing the European negotiations. So that's Europe out of the Foreign Office's remit to some extent. You have Liam Fox in charge of cutting trade deals. So that bit's out of the remit. So Boris Johnson's got the rest of the world, quite a lot of which he's insulted at one point or another. 
Will he cut his foreign... One thing that matters as foreign secretary is language. It's one of those jobs where you've got to get your language absolutely right. It, it matters in the diplomatic world. And that's what a lot of people might say. Well, he's made an interesting choice. I think, you know, Boris Johnson has shown in eight years as London mayor that he does know when not to let himself off the leash. You know, he is in control of himself a lot of the time. One has to remember that a lot of his most undiplomatic phrases were not made in the pursuit of active politics, but while writing a newspaper column for the Daily Telegraph. And there are they are different jobs. I think we may be surprised at the extent to which he jollies people up and jollies along and manages. I don't think it's that important because I don't think the job is that important Are anymore. you convinced, Philip? No, I'm not, actually. I Well, first of all, of course, as Foreign Secretary, whether he can win votes and win over people doesn't really matter unless he's looking for votes in Latin America or Asia or whatever. But I do think we're at a moment in British history where we have to re-answer a question which was asked decades ago by a US Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, when he said, here's a country that's lost an empire and failed to find a role. Having knocked down the European pillar of our foreign policy, we have to find a role again. In fact, Theresa May on the threshold of Downing Street said one of her jobs is to find a new role for Britain in the world. I think the Foreign Secretary has an important part to play in that, even if it's just organising the diplomats to set priorities. The other thing I worry about is that the idea of Boris Johnson sitting down with the Russian foreign minister, Lavrov, Lavrov, to talk about, you know, to make hard choices about Ukraine and Crimea or sitting down as um, Hammond did with the Iranians to talk about their nuclear program. At the final level, these are decisions made by heads of government and heads of state. But the foreign secretary does a lot of really hard, gritty detailed work in negotiating and frankly I don't think Boris is up to that. When you look at the three people she's given the international portfolios to Fox, Boris Johnson and David Davis, Robert has she chosen three people whom she can manage or are they going to be weighty figures in the formulation of policy? I have the slight impression that she could have actually gone for some more complicated difficult people to deal with. She might have gone for Grayling at the Department for Brexit rather than David Davis. It looks to me a more determined sort of individual. How do you see the balance between what she's, what, I, I what she's doing there? I think it's quite difficult to be certain. You know, David Davis and Liam Fox um, and indeed Boris Johnson, these are not political bulldozers in one sense who are going to know what they want, drive it through, defy all civil servants. They might like to think they are, but I'm not sure they actually are. On the other hand, they're also quite unpredictable people. Boris, we know, is unpredictable. David Davis has resigned from the front bench before, forced a by-election to make a point. No one can remember what the point he was trying to make was. These are not people who are entirely controllable. So if she thinks she can run these people, she could be in for a shot. On the other hand, you know, the new Brexit department, for example, the head official in that was appointed by David Cameron. That was done before David Davis got here. So you've got someone number 10 will trust in charge of that department at an official level. David Davis is not famous for doing all the really detailed, the hard, detailed work. Boris well, Johnson Robert isn't. Means he's idle. Well, <laughs> Do you think that? Yeah. This is his reputation in the Foreign Office. But my no. colleague, Mr Stevens, has chosen the Boris Johnsonian way of, of describing this, but I would prefer to stick to the diplomatic language uh, that I first deployed. The fact is, a determined Prime Minister can keep control of this, up to a point, that point being, where they can stand up and say, she's selling us out, this is not the deal we tried to do. So she has some 
control, but not total. I just think there's a conspiracy theory going around, which I think it's worth discounting, which is she's put these Brexiteers in these positions as if to say, look, you got us into this mess. You clean it up. Um, That's a nice theory. It's not true, I don't think, because if it's not cleaned up, she will ultimately bear the political cost. If they fail, she fails. If they fail, she fails, unless they fail and she can replace them with other people. Theresa May's premiership is going to be defined by whether she can get a reasonable deal to disentangle us from the EU. Can I ask you both about the removal of George Osborne from the Treasury and from the government itself and also Michael Gove? There's an argument some people are making out there that these are actually very talented people. They've thought very hard about government. Gove was a reformer in education. Osborne was somebody considerable as in the role of Chancellor. He may have made a lot of mistakes, but nonetheless, he had to deal with a difficult situation in 2010 of, of the deficit. Was she right to get rid of them, or was there, Philip, a, a place inside the government for them? I think it was inevitable she got rid of Michael Gove. They had clashed in government over issues such as security and de-radicalisation, and they'd had some fairly tempestuous rows, one or two of which broke into the public. So they were no friends. I'm told that she said to Michael Gove when she sacked him that she was putting a premium on loyalty, referring, of course, to the fact that Gove had shown himself entirely disloyal uh, to Boris Johnson. So I think that was inevitable. They had to go, you think? I think Gove had to go. I think it's good that Osborne's gone, probably for Osborne. I think he was foolish not to resign as opposed to wait to be sacked. I think he's 45. He's a very talented politician. He's got a lot of ideas, whether one agrees with them or not. This, if he plays it right gives him a chance to move on to the backbenches, support the government, and then fill himself out as a political figure. Theresa May's 59, so that means he's got another 14 years in which he's got a chance of being Prime Minister. Yes, I completely agree with Philip. I think George Osborne should have seen the writing on the wall and walked himself. That's the only thing that could have been different about the outcome. The one point I would make, however, is that we're all sort of seasoned political watchers and we all watched the John Major government when we were all political reporters. And it's very easy to talk about circumstances as if they really are in the control of these political titans. I mean, the hard fact about this government is that Theresa May is going to be battling forces that are overwhelmingly difficult. She is leading a government that has no money. She is leading a government that has a very, very slim majority. And she has to manage one of the most complex political problems that any modern prime minister has faced. The cards are massively stacked against this government. And the only thing it has in its favour is that the opposition is in such a hopeless position that it's got the time to try and figure out what it wants to do. But, you know, while it's looked tremendously impressive this week to see her sweeping in, clearing out the people she didn't want, getting a government of her choosing, the fact is she is not in control of events and she has been dealt a very tough hand. That brings us on to, I suppose, one other aspect, which is, and you touched on it at the start, Philip, which is the extent to which she has set out a credible One Nation vision in the speech that she made and in some of the appointments she's made as well. Given that that this is a government under enormous constraints, has to deal with the EU issue, a probable recession in the next few months, what scope is there, Philip, do you think, for her to flesh out those One Nation ideas? Are we going to see 
policies, an industrial policy, a policy to build more housing supply. Are we going to see something tangible happening or is this all rhetoric? Well, I think in style and tone, if you look at some of the appointments, Greg Clark to business and energy, Damien Green to work and welfare, these are people who will send the right signals. So I think in style and tone it would be different. I think there will be some policy changes. I suspect that we won't see some of the mistakes that George Osborne made in past budgets, you know, taxes, trying to tax pasties and static caravans made by Philip Hammond, the new chancellor, a very steady, I think, pair of hands. But I think Robert hit the nail on the head absolutely when he said, this is a government with no money. And if you want to be one nation in substance, it costs So I think as things stand, it's more style than sub. Obviously, I completely agree with that. And I was watching somebody talking about this last night. And he said that if you look back to the Blair era, many of the things she's talked about were things that Tony Blair tried to do. And his government had lashings of money and only scratched the surface of a number of these things. So even if you believe what she says she wants to do, and and I do broadly, it's going to be very difficult. I think for me, the one thing I would look at, the one thing that I think this government really needs to do if it wants to deal with disaffection and the popular revolt in the UK is housing. I would look at housing consistently. If there's one target she wants to go after, and it obviously lends itself to borrowing, which makes life a bit simpler, I would watch what she does on housing. If we see major house building programmes, then I think we're starting to see something that suggests she really is going to carry through on this. One last question for both of you. Theresa May is obviously somebody who's been on the national scene for many years as party chairman, more recently as Home Secretary, and she held down that job for six years, which was a political graveyard for many politicians. Sweeping into number 10, though, is another thing altogether. As you look at how she's conducted herself, the way she's conducted the cabinet changes and the speech on the steps of number 10, has she impressed you this week, Philip? I think so, yes, because she's poised and I think she conveys a certain seriousness and a certain gravitas which I think our politics needs at the moment. Um, Robert said earlier, you know, we've seen the Labour Party pulling itself apart. We saw, quote, the boys playing games in the Tory party. So to have someone who's very visibly a grown-up there, I think is good. But I think the one thing one needs to say is that Theresa May, during her six years in the Cabinet, has shown no interest in the world in things that happen beyond Britain's shores. Someone was telling me she went to meetings of the National Security Council week in, week out, and she wouldn't say a word as Syria was discussed, as EU Mm. problem was discussed, the transatlantic relationship was discussed. She has got to learn very quickly that the world impinges on Brexit, but also beyond. And we've seen in the tragic killings in France only today how you can't shut out the world so she's got a very steep learning curve. She's viewed the issues in the Middle East and foreign policy very much through a national security prism as Home Secretary. Hasn't she Robert with her visits to Jordan for instance over Abu Qatar were very much about dealing with a domestic issue about the deportation and and so in that sense that is right. She's not an imaginative person is she? That's the phrase people use of her. That is what's it. I think that the truth is you can't blame Theresa May for doing the job of Home Secretary with a focus on home affairs. Um, the issue is what she'll be like as Prime Minister. And the truth is that actually what we saw of people before they became Prime Minister is often a very bad guide to what they will be like in charge. Anthony Eden was meant to have been a triumphant Prime Minister, totally ready for it, 
a disaster. Margaret Thatcher looked incredibly narrow, widely considered to be one of our greatest prime no, ministers. We had a good measure of Gordon Brown, I think, well, in terms of what he have, would be but like. Gordon Brown also yeah, inherited a, a massive crisis. <laughs> I, that was the second point I was going to make, is that the other thing one has to look at, particularly if someone comes to office, you know, later in life, is that they're not likely to change that much. The main thing about Gordon Brown was Gordon Brown had used up all of his ideas before he became prime minister. Therefore, there was no great change because we already knew what Gordon Brown was about. Theresa May we know a lot less about and maybe there's more to her than she's had the chance to show. All I would say is I'm not convinced that what we've seen so far is an absolute indicator of what we'll see in the future. Robert, Philip, thank you very much. It has also been a tumultuous week for the Labour Party. Angela Eagle, the former Shadow Business Secretary, launched a leadership challenge against Jeremy Corbyn, as did Owen Smith, the former Shadow Work and Pension Secretary. But moderate plotters in the party were keen to keep Mr Corbyn off the ballot paper and attempted to do so during a meeting of the party's National Executive Committee on Tuesday. They failed. Emma, looking back at the events of the week, Labour had this meeting of the NEC at which it was decided that Jeremy Corbyn could stand again for the leadership without getting the requisite number of MPs in the parliamentary ballot. Why did that happen? Why did the NEC side with Jeremy Corbyn and not with the plotters, so to speak? Essentially, the rules, as written down, are very, very unclear. So there was conflicting legal advice, one of which had been um, given to the General Secretary of the Labour Party, said that they should have to have nominations to be on the ballot paper. The other of which said that they didn't, and that the rule that says that a challenger has to have nominations excluded the incumbent. I think the problem is, is that the rules were written with an unwritten rule that says that anyone who lost the confidence of the Parliamentary Labour Party would feel that they had to step down. But it's not so written as the rules. So it's very much about the, the rules itself. And then the NEC is not a body of mandarins. This is not a set of civil servants there to interpret the rules without any bias or persuasion. These are people who are elected by CLPs, most of whom are elected on one slate or another. These are people who are elected by the unions. Again, they will run on a left or a right position to do so. So most of the people on the NEC will have gone into that room probably knowing how they were going to vote in the first place. John, this was a victory for Jeremy Corbyn, wasn't it? Oh, it was a victory for Len McCluskey, if we're absolutely honest. The head of the United Union, who also forces the GMB and Unison to march in lockstep with him, I have no idea what those union leaders think they're doing. The GMB won't try to be renewed. Uh, Unison, their workers in the health service and local government do need to have a Labour government. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn is not going to provide that Labour government ever. And Len McCluskey doesn't really care about having a Labour government. He does come from the revolutionary left. For him and Jeremy Corbyn, John McDonnell, in the end, everything is about control of the party. And if they shrink the party's popularity, which they're doing, and if they shrink the number of MPs, which they will do in, in the long run, it'll still be a bigger ultra-left party than any of them could have dreamt of in their youth. So from a Corbyn point of view, it's a party project, not a public project. Now, of course, the leadership contest goes to the party activists. You've got Jeremy Corbyn standing against Angela Eagle, and now Owen Smith, the Shadow Work and Pension Secretary, has come along and said he's standing. That can't be very good for the anti-Corbyn movement. It looks like that now splits the vote and Mr Corbyn should come through. Is that right? Well, I strongly suspect there will, in the end, only be one candidate running against uh, Mr Corbyn, whether that's Angela Eagle or Owen Smith or AN other who throw their hat into the ring. The Parliamentary Labour Party have been organised in the way that they have said that they have no longer 
any faith in Jeremy Corbyn, they need to be organised in the way that they then put up a candidate against him. Is that your reading, John? Uh, yes, I think so. And there's already pressure on Angela Eagle to withdraw. Um, and I think on Monday, the PLP will try to find a process uh, of deciding which of the two they wish to stand. Is um, Owen Smith the better candidate, do you think, uh, from the anti-Corbyn point of view? I think Owen Smith is the better candidate. Uh, he's the better candidate because he's from the soft left and only supported by the soft left. In a sense, only the left can win this battle. Um, Angela forced the NEC meeting. She forced the ruling on the rules. Uh, but quite often, the person who makes the running in these things, you know, like if you wield the knife, you don't wear the crown. And so I think that's the old Michael Hasseltine rule. <laughs> Michael Hasseltine rule, yeah, no, and, and, and Michael Gove. And so I think it's, I wouldn't be surprised if, if Owen came out. And Owen came in in 2010, so therefore he can claim the credit of the Blair Brown years, but doesn't actually have to wear any of the consequences of any of the unpopular policies. And 13 years of government always produces some unpopular policies as well. Let's assume one of the two candidates comes through, and let's assume for a moment it's Owen Smith, and it goes now to the party activists. Emma, can you just run me through, what are the chances, do you think, of somebody defeating Jeremy Corbyn? Because the shape of the activist base is somewhat unclear to outsiders. Clearly they were all behind him last time, but more people have joined, others have left. How do you see it? I think that the bookies would probably have Jeremy Corbyn as quite a strong favourite. There are two very distinct trains of thought in the Labour Party at the moment that are running on completely parallel tracks. They do not meet in the middle. There is the Labour Party, as probably best exemplified by the speech that uh, Neil Kinnock made to the Parliamentary Labour Party about the fact that they are constituted to be in Parliament to try and win parliamentary power to try and govern. And that element are the ones who despair that Jeremy Corbyn cannot win the country, that he is in polls more and more unpopular. He's neither winning more popularity nor is he showing leadership to his parliamentary Labour Party. Then you have a vast majority of fired up, energised members, some of whom are young people coming into politics for the first time, a lot of whom are not. There is a wide misconception about who the Corbyn supporters are. Some of them are 45 to 60 who drifted away from Labour during the Blair years and have come back because they now feel the party is the you know the socialist home that they always yes. wanted it to be they are less attracted to the power they believe in social movements the young people particularly are coming from a generation where parliamentary power is not where it's at it's not important to them mm. and again there are two very parallel tracks of yes, thinking indeed. john which one do you think is in the majority well i think that there's a wild card which is the eu referendum the bulk of the membership of the Labour Party live in London in the southeast. The bulk of them are university graduates. The bulk of them uh, were massively in favour of staying in the European Union. And at my party branch, which is sort of a mixture of Peckham and Dulwich, 20-odd people came along the other week and... Only one of them was still a full Corbyn supporter. Very many of them were deeply disappointed by his performance in the European Union referendum. And I think that issue, which is so important for young people, so important for Londoners and people in the southeast, that's an issue which, if it's got right, could be the issue on which this is decided. Because if there's a vote of no confidence from the members, it will be on that issue, the European Union referendum. Because people may want to be in a social movement rather than a political party. They definitely want to be in the European Union. So you, John, definitely think there is a chance Corbyn can be defeated in the, in the activist well, vote? Well, I think there's the issue, the European Union, uh, which crystallises the question of what winning and losing means, and it makes it very practical. But there's also the fact that the National Executive Committee have made it clear that 
people who have been abusive on Twitter or other forms of social media, and people who uh, voted for, supported other political parties in May 2015 uh, will be referred to the National Executive Committee. So a very well-organized campaign could go through membership lists and say that person's socialist unity, that person has got a tweet supporting the Green Party, and you could actually take a large number of members and put them in a kind of problematic box, and they couldn't be gone through fast enough. So you could actually have a slimming down of, of the selectorate plus this other issue. So there's more to play for, but again, that's why it has to be one candidate. And it has to be the candidate that have the broadest reach to the lefter edge of it, because even some of the people who drifted away in the Blair years, they don't want to be outside the European Union. So a strong voice about the European Union is important for them. Emma, let's then go through scenarios. Let us suppose we get to September and Jeremy Corbyn wins. What is going to happen then, in your view? What is your prediction? I think we'll just keep doing this in perpetuity. I think that there is an irretrievable breakdown between the Corbyn leadership, his staff and the PLP. Do you not think that the 170 Labour MPs who basically are against him will go off and form a separate party? Is that possible? It's more possible than it has ever been in my lifetime. I think we're closer to that than we were in the 1980s. Well, I suppose they did, but only four of them. It doesn't really count when it's only four rather than 172. I think it would be a disaster for the left um, to split. And I think the problem would be, and John's absolutely right about this, the aim of the hard left is to get the brand Labour. Um, That works very well for them. If they can end up owning the name The Labour Party... Where there are places where people don't obsess about politics the way we do, they will go and they'll put their ticket against Labour. And that means that you will have a parliamentary, a national force for this hard left party, whether it is what I would think of the Labour Party, whether it's what John would think of. And John and I disagree on politics almost as often as we agree. But what we both have come to accept about the Labour Party is that we are a collective of people with enough shared aims and values. John, what do you think? So I think if Corbyn wins, uh, there could be more extreme displays of uh, disloyalty. So why would the PLP want to go and sit behind him in PMQs? Why couldn't they just leave the benches empty? They could do a proper work to Mm. rule. But what Corbyn will do, will use the control of the Labour Party, unless the NEC is wrested from him, to push through mandatory reselection. So momentum will then make MPs' lives uh, in their constituencies to make them hell. Now, there is a chance that next year a moderate candidate could win the General Secretaryship of Unite. That would shift the balance of power massively. And there's a chance that the 172 MPs will launch another challenge. I wouldn't say they couldn't do this again and again and again until they get him out. The problem is if you fail once, it's very unlikely you'll, you'll win the next time. So the logic is hang together or hang separately. Now, that could mean leaving... And the one thing people forget about the STP is that they are the most successful political party of the post-war period because that is what New Labour was. It was basically Owenism. Blairism was Owenism. And Cameron and Osborne were just a Tory version of Owenism. That mixture of ideas that the STP had, that's where the centre ground of British politics was then in the 80s. It was in the 90s. It still is. And there's a huge appetite for that kind of party Uh, And I think that you could see a very strong case being made for leaving it and devoting your energies to actually running a successful opposition. The midway would be to take control of the Parliamentary Labour Party, elect your own leader, and go to the Speaker and say, the leader of the Parliamentary Labour Party is Owen Smith. The leader of the 
UK Labour Party, elected by the membership, is that guy. And we want all the short money, we want all the support, all the recognition, we want to do PMQs. Just one point in particular, if you had that kind of split that took mm. place, you'd effectively have a hard-left Labour Party, mm. which was supported by the trade unions, yep. one imagines, yep. unite, and you'd then have a moderate Labour Party. Mm. What would its sources of funding and its organisational base be? Could it actually survive? Would there be enough funding for it, enough of the kind of heavy-duty support that it needs to thrive? Well, as David Plouffe, who ran Obama's two campaigns to win the presidency, said to me in Washington, the internet is a net. It's great for fundraising. And Bernie Sanders has shown that too. There are ways of raising money substantially. And the truth is, if this country wants a moderate centre-left progressive party, then the people who want to offer that to the country need to dip into their pockets. I'll certainly pay substantially more in donations to the Labour Party than I've ever given before to make this happen. I'm pretty sure I'm not alone among this. And the rich London, southeast, educated, professional classes have got a lot of money, not always liquid, but they've got a lot of money, and I think you could raise money properly to, to do this. But if you're going to win, you have to do everything necessary to win. And so if you do a new party, you have to do everything differently, everything from the beginning, and that could be a boon and a blessing because uh, legacy organisations always have a problem. John McTernan, Emma Burnell, thank you. And that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much for all guests for joining. We'll be back next week for another instalment. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy the FT's Banking Weekly. It's presented by me, Patrick Jenkins, the financial editor at the FT, and I'm joined by a team and an external guest every week. You can find this every Tuesday at ft.com slash podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.